0: This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud.
1: This election didn't just change a government. It was a green slide.
2: Safe liberal seat, two term incumbent, independent.
1: We need to
0: go back to our values, our principles. Look closely at what has happened.
1: Our policies will be squarely aimed at the Forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellas, the host of RM Breakfast, and I'm joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri Nation here in Parliament House in Canberra, where I've been for the first sitting week.
2: Yeah, and what a week it's been. Frank Kelly with you here on the Gadigal Land of the a Nation. The PK this parliamentary year started with a bang. I'm sure you felt it. A couple of seismic events, really, on the on the first sitting days. No sooner was everyone back at their desk than the Greens lost one of their numbers. The Greens' Indigenous spokesperson, Lydia Thorpe, quit the party over the issue of support for The Voice. So she'll now be sitting on the Senate crossbench there alongside, I know, the likes of Jackie Lamb, David Pocock, Pauline Hanson and others. And we're going to take a look at what that might mean for the Voice to Parliament campaign, the Yes campaign, when we're joined by Catherine Murphy, political editor of The Guardian, a little later. But Pico, the other big bang reverberating across the country and certainly being felt on the government benches in Canberra, I'm sure you'll agree, was the RBA's decision to lift rates again, the ninth interest rate rise since May. And as if that wasn't frightening enough for everyone who's got a home loan and the politicians they ultimately elect, I think you'll agree. The Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, issued a statement on the bank's goal of trying to tame inflation in which he spoke of further interest rate rises. Not one rise, PK, but rises, plural, which Mm.
1: I reckon does warrant the tag of seismic or seismic-ish, don't you? Oh, 100%. That's right, friend. Look, the RBA handed down that rate rise of 25 basis points on Tuesday after their sort of longer break that they have at the end of the year. You know, so February rate rise, everyone knew that was coming, mm. takes us to 3.35%. So that may not have been a surprise. But as you say, the seismic pick being about there being multiple rate rises, that's what really shocked everyone and really got everyone nervous. Now, it will, of course, Compound the extreme financial pressure that I think many households are currently facing. It means repayments on a $750,000 mortgage have now risen by almost $1,400 a month since May. Oh,
2: that's a, that's a, such a lot, isn't it? It's like, what, $350 extra a week
1: in your after-tax money it's on, enormous. Your <laughs> it's on your enormous. mortgage. It's enormous. Just on your mortgage. Enormous. And we also should acknowledge that as well as mortgage borrowers... It will actually impact renters. Mm. It'll have lots of impacts on housing broadly, not just people who are perhaps lucky enough to own a home. Renters make up 30% of households in Australia. This is the trickle down um, impact of all of this. Now back to the RBA. The governor's statement was a surprise to all. There was an expectation that after this rate rise, the RBA might hit pause for a while as it waited to see whether the sort of cumulative impact of all these rate rises might deal with Inflation. Mm. Remember, they're doing this to get inflation in their target range, but no such luck. And that has been quite shocking for householders, but also for the government. Now, I spoke to the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, on our own breakfast on Wednesday after the rate rise, a long interview worth listening to on the ABC Listen app just to hear how he's positioning on this. He was hesitant to agree that there will actually even be multiple rate rises, despite the RBA very bluntly flagging that that will be the case. He says, yes, he knows that was clear in the statement, but hold off, let's see. (laughs) And he said that the central bank had to walk a fine line, and this is what I thought was key, to ensure it brought down inflation, which he accepts is its job, without crunching the economy. Let's take a listen. I don't. Preempt or second guess the decisions taken by the Independent Reserve Bank. I mean, their job is to get on top of this inflation challenge in our economy without crunching our economy. Uh, My job is to do what we can uh, to take some of the pressure off people around the country who are doing it tough. So that was the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, speaking to me. Fran, his colleagues have been a little uh, more free with their words. They've been very critical of the RBA. He is the Treasurer. He has to be quite careful. It's an independent Reserve Bank but he didn't seem to me overwhelmed with happiness about this strategy. (laughs) No, they're not happy.
2: I mean, you're there, PK, and you'd be talking to a lot of people, I'm sure, this week. And I'm sure you're getting the view from the government that they're pretty nervous about this, well, cost of living crisis more broadly, but also all these rate rises and the flow and effect from them. And what is the Reserve Bank strategy? I mean, I'm hearing it. I'm sure you're hearing it loud and clear down there. But the Treasurer's Got it right when he talks about you know crunching the economy. The problem is, PK, just as we've been saying, for a lot of Australians, it's crunch time now. And then you add on the fact that eight hundred thousand homeowners will come off their fixed low interest rates through this year. So they haven't. These are people who haven't really felt the impact of the past nine rate rises. So mortgage hell awaits them, and that's before we consider the general cost of living pressures that are biting deep into the household budget. The energy prices rising sharply again. Grocery prices all going up. Rents, as you mentioned. Going uh, Oz Harvest, a charity that gives food, you know, to people in need, says that 50% of the people accessing Oz Harvest services right now actually have a job. So, you know, what's happening is fruit and veggie prices are going up, your yeah, yeah, energy prices are going up, but wages aren't going up by the same amount, if at all. So, when the treasurer says the government has to do what it can to take the pressure off people. You know, that's easier said than done because where, where can the government really relieve cost of living pressures? Where can it tip billions of dollars of relief into households without adding to inflation, without, you know, making sure they're going to crunch the economy? There is going to be some electricity bill relief later this year for low and middle income households, but there is a lack of cash to splash around. There isn't big surpluses now and the inflation threat makes it hard for the government to give much more direct relief. So you're going to hear the Prime Minister talking about child care relief and talking about fee-free TAFE and talking about cheaper medicines. But in terms of dollars in your household pot to pay the bills, they can't do much. So when the treasurer says his job is to do what he can to take some of the pressure of people around the economy who are doing it tough, it's unclear really that there's very much they can do at all in the short term.
1: And what happens um, as a result? Well, at this stage, I think there's been pretty broad goodwill towards the government. Even actually, you know, senior opposition members say, "Look, it seems to us from talking in our electorates that people want the prime minister to be successful. They have a view that that's part of the popularity of the government. They want it to. They just voted in this government, yeah. so to speak. They want it to go well. But as this starts to hit, as you say, this sort of cliff, eight hundred thousand people. It won't be the same for all of them. Some will have buffers, as we've heard, but it will hurt some, and that's yet to be quite quantified." Who Who's going to get the blame? Sure, people can say, the, you know, get rid of the RBA, Governor. We hate the RBA. And I'm sure that'll be a sentiment in the community and it's being expressed by some MPs. But it ends up being governments mm. that end up wearing it. And that's where the nervousness comes, Fran, because the government knows it hasn't got a whole lot it can do, and yet it's about to get the political blowback. We suspect, based on past precedent, it's already getting it in the parliament, isn't it? I mean, Question
2: Time all week was the opposition just taking pot shot after pot shot, and you know, prices are always higher under Labor, interest rates are always higher under Labor. They're only just warming up. So, you know, when I said, "What can the government do. You already mentioned, and we heard there again in that grab from the Treasurer, that, you know, the Treasurer and the Prime Minister have been saying all weeks, we have an independent Reserve Bank, you know, they're not going to make comments on interest rates. But some other senior government ministers are certainly trying to send a message anyway to the Reserve Bank Governor that more rate rises will deliver too much pain and end up overcorrecting for inflation and run the risk of plunging the economy into a recession. It's called jawboning, that kind of, you know, talking out loud, sending a public message to, Reserve Bank Governor. I'm sure he's heard it. We certainly have seen it a bit this week for some senior ministers.
1: Yeah, and that muscling up, not only is it a message to the Reserve Bank Governor, and of course it is. Remember, there's a Reserve Bank review underway. Again, Jim Chalmers didn't confirm whether the Reserve Bank Governor, who apparently wants to go around again, he wants another term, will be reappointed. And I don't know how they can reappoint a Governor that is toxically unpopular, I've got to say, in the political class and I think in the electorate. So there's that element. But then on the other side of politics, you mentioned this, Fran. I've watched it in Question Time. I've gone to all the Question Times just to really get a sense of where is the political battle going to be this year. You really get a sense from the questions and the temper, all of it, right? And the opposition's strategy is entirely about pushing them on the economy. Mm. And a few opposition uh, MPs who are concerned about what the election loss meant last year have noted to me that they are concerned that, that the strategy is so far, is entirely on the economy crashing and the political dividend of that, and yep. or at the government, and then, you know, maybe you'll park your vote with the Liberals again. And there's not being, and this is another theme which we'll talk about in coming weeks on The Party Room, but there's not enough work going into fundamental questions about the Liberal Party's identity, mm. young voters, all of that. There's mm. too much of a focus on the government's going to be in trouble this year because it's of very, the economy. It's a very Tony Abbott approach to opposition, isn't it, really? Well, uh, the, the Prime Minister's started using the language, you know, you're trying to be the Noelition again oh, yeah. Um in the parliament this week. Which is something they used to say about it. Tony Abbott, wasn't it? Sure was. So anyway, that's an interesting thing to watch because I do think the political battle is on the economy, but at the same time, um, we, the Liberal Party, is going to need to do some more existential kind of soul searching about what else it does beyond that, you know, that core political business it engages in on the day to day. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Catherine Murphy is political editor at The Guardian and our guest in the party room. Welcome, Murph. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Yeah,
2: Murph Thanks for joining us again at the start of a political year that's going to be a tough one. But tell you what, it was a tough week for Australian households. Cost of living pressures intensifying with this ninth interest rate rise on the run. The RBA makes its decisions independently, of course, and the PM and the Treasurer are always telling us that as loudly as they can. And we've just been talking about this. But there are signs, aren't there, that the government is... Feeling the pressure from the RBA stance.
0: Yeah, oh, for sure. Look, in, in terms of the bank this week in announcing the cash rate hike, there were two very ominous statements uh, or observations in the RBA's official statement. The first one was the path to achieving a soft landing remains a narrow one. <coughs> Uh, then uh, the second, if you're the government of the day, was the board expects uh, further increases in rates, all in rates will be needed uh, to ensure inflation returns to target. Now, if you are a government, uh, still new... Uh, maybe just slightly off your honeymoon, looking at a, a very sort of heavy year of governing, which is what you alluded to, Fran. Um, I think <laughs> those those two statements would not have been welcome. And uh, I think uh, there's quite a bit of evidence uh, that the government senior players fear that the bank is inclined to overcorrect in terms of its uh, interventions rather than. Play it by Mm. ear. And, you know, we're sort of seeing that filtering out uh, from well, through through the mouths of various people, senior and junior.
1: As well as hampering household spending, it will also make it harder for the government to keep spending because, you know, if the government spends too, that increases inflation. So there's pressure on the government actually in its strategy as well. As we move to the May budget, the government is promising to exercise spending restraint. It's one of the pillars the Treasurer talks about. He said it in the interview with me. That's one of the fundamentals... You had an in depth conversation with the Prime Minister as part of your Guardian Australia podcast, and that was released last weekend. Did he have any plans to directly combat cost of living pressures while not inflaming inflation? How, is there any sort of deeper thinking on this?
0: Oh, look, I think they are quite preoccupied by it, but I think the problem is their room to manoeuvre is limited, as you said. Uh, Patricia, there's this sort of vicious cycle, really, that that we saw a bit last year and will intensify into the budget cycle and beyond, which is that the more people are hurting in the community in terms of their cost of living pressure and their increased borrowing costs, the more there will be an inclination for them to want the government to do something. And, you know, as you said a minute ago, right, rebates, handouts, temporary measures like that sort of fuel the inflation cycle that the bank is trying to combat, so it's room to move is limited. I think in the budget, obviously, we will see uh, the energy price rebates that were flagged at the end of last year. Uh, and obviously, to what extent you intervene beyond that is a political calculation that you mm. make closer to the time of the budget being handed down. But it is really difficult because you know, there is pain and because of the lag in the monetary policy cycle the pain will get worse, but the capacity to do anything about it is limited. Well, that's right. The
2: capacity is limited. The spending restraint needs to be there because of inflation. I think it's made even worse because we've all got used to government giving away a lot of money. I mean, the last couple of years of COVID, the last two or three budgets before this one have been full of of money for us and all sorts of things. And some Mm. of it politically motivated, most of it aimed at trying to keep the economy afloat. But we've gotten a little bit used to that. And I think that, does make the government's job more difficult here. But also in terms of that, you know, a few things filtering out and the government's nervousness, I think, is filtering out. I was really struck by the intervention of Bill Shorten this week and Stephen Jones, who's the assistant treasurer in the interest rate debate. I want to talk about jawboning because they were both jawboning away on the telly with a really clear message, the Reserve Bank governor, I thought. Here's Bill Shorten.
0: The reality is that if the Reserve Bank, which is independent, makes this decision, that is going to be incredibly painful for millions of Australians who are paying their mortgages off. I understand the Reserve Bank's motivated to try and reduce inflation, but, you know, I see a lot of commentators sort of baying for more and more increases to the the cash rate. I think some of the people who are calling for more and more increases to cash really don't understand the harm they're causing. The mortgage holders aren't the people driving inflation. So that's Bill Shorten,
2: former leader, cabinet minister. And then there was the assistant treasurer, Stephen Jones. He was even clearer. He said the government was hoping this increase, quote, was the last or if not the last, nearly the last rate rise. So what's going on here? Are they breaking the party line or is this authorised jawboning, do you think?
0: Look, I think the messaging is, I don't know, to what, what do you call it, authorised. I mean, it's certainly um, it's certainly on song with the collective disposition of the government. Now, I mean, we we obviously know the government's got an issue with the bank or wants to think about uh, the uh, the bank at a structural level because there's a review. Uh, you don't review an institution no. that you're happy with, right? So we know that. In terms of uh, the sort of jawboning about don't overcorrect that reflects a, a concern. I don't know if it's sort of treasury-based or if it's a cabinet-level thing, but there is a concern that the bank will overcorrect. Uh, and, you know, sort of getting back to that soft landing pathway, it is it is very narrow. You can tip the economy into recession quite easily, right? So there's that. I mean, obviously, Fran, you're alluding to this being quite unusual. Obviously, it's been a sort of religion that the bank is independent yeah. and one doesn't comment on, you know, the sort of internals of the bank or the wisdom of the bank or the the logic of the bank. And that's important. It's an important structure in our system that the bank does have independence. But I think the government is sort of building up to a bit of a change of the guard at the bank, a bit of a change in thinking, a bit of change in emphasis, because, you know, there's sort of really big economic questions, I suppose you've got to ask yourself. The bank is basically geared to dealing with the problems of the 80s and 90s, (laughs) Uh, you know, yeah, the is world's the, changed. Is, yeah. yeah. Is the bank sort of looking at the world through uh, the prism that we need in, in the contemporary environment? And just, just one more thing quickly, quite apart from sending this signal on the bank that, that, you know, we want things to be a bit different, obviously Shorten's comments you hear all around the place. It's that art of politics of reflecting people's frustrations back to them in a sort of empathetic listening. Like lots mm. of people say, "Oh, you know, well, all those high-paid bankers, what do they know about what it's like to have to service a mortgage? There really is that sentiment around. Yep. I think it's sort of, you know, the government does set a bit of store on empathetic listening, on reflecting people's views back to them and, you know, not in some
1: sort of... <laughs> (laughs)
0: in a ridiculous way, but just in a gesture, right? We get it, we understand it, we know people think this. I think there's a few factors there, Fran.
1: Now, uh, we started the podcast alluding to or mentioning that something else big happened this week, and that was really big, really, for a minor party for the Senate, the resignation from the Greens by Victorian Indigenous Senator Lydia Thorpe, who will now sit on the crossbench. I want to move now to her her departure and what it means on multiple levels, if we can. Let's hear how this all played out. Now I will be able to speak freely on all issues from a sovereign perspective without being constrained by portfolios and agreed party positions.
0: Look, uh, she made her decision. I feel sad about it. I'd hoped that she would stay in the party, including as our First Nations spokesperson. She's uh, chosen a different course.
1: If I got a dollar for every time I heard the word sad mm. from the <laughs> Greens leader, Adam Bant, mm. I would be able to well, finance my mortgage. Mm. Um, seriously.
0: No, no, I agree. I mean, it wasn't only Adam Bant, Patricia. We had the sad campaign from <laughs> from everyone. There was quite well, a lot of about Well, they were sad. About. Come on.
1: They were sad. Uh, they, they said they were sad, but what was really going on, Catherine Murphy? Because what led to this?
0: Well, look, I think, uh, as you said, Patricia, Adam Bant has really thrown the kitchen sink at trying to keep... Lydia Thorpe in the Greens' tent. Why? Well, no party leader wants their activist base split. And we've seen in the days following Lydia Thorpe's departure a split in the Greens' activist base. That is Mm. not helpful for a party leader at any time and particularly not in the middle of what will be a very messy referendum campaign, to have people saying different things and to have your base basically not united. So I think he tried to prevent that happening for those reasons, I think also with an eye to the success of the referendum campaign. And it didn't work. I mean, you can only negotiate with an actor who wants to negotiate.
2: Let's have a look at what one scenario or the other, the eventuation, will mean for the success of the Yes campaign because if he wanted to try and keep Senator Thorpe in the Greens' tent... That was proving a really problematic, I think, for the Yes campaign. I mean, it put the Greens in stasis. They couldn't really participate. Therefore, the sort of the overall feeling was that they weren't supporting it. I think it took the Yes campaign backwards. Now, with Senator Thorpe gone, we hear Adam Bant saying the Greens are going to lean into the Yes campaign. They're going to support it, you know, wholeheartedly, full thrust. They think it's a good thing. So you've got that happening. But then you've got, you know, Lydia Thorpe on the outside Perhaps being even more disruptive than she would have been if she didn't have some of that cloak of discipline from being within the Greens party room. So how do you think this change is going to affect the outcome of the referendum, the Yes campaign particularly?
0: Well, sadly, none of us have got crystal balls. It's a bit hard to say, really, at this point. It may be uh, a sort of phenomenon that dominates the opening of the political year, but ebbs as the year carries on. Or it may be just a lantern held over what you'd call referendumitis, uh, which is uh, people (laughs) basically, you know, well, it's, it's like it's the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of like if you are proposing a constitutional change, you want the questions to be simple, comprehensible and not weighted by a bunch of side issues that may or may not be relevant. Uh, The history of referendum campaigns in Australia show us that we do uh, often sort of veer off into cul-de-sacs, side lanes, uh, and if that happens, then obviously referendum proposals tend to get defeated. So obviously it's it's not a great development. Now, there is a difference uh, between views about the voice at the leadership level, Indigenous leadership level, there are some people at community level who have issues with the voice, who don't want to be part of the white man's constitution, who want sovereignty dealt with. And, you know, look, <laughs> it's hardly unreasonable, is it? Uh, but that's the sort of danger of uh, of. Sort of Thorpe appointing herself the figurehead of that alternate set of voices. The Black
1: Sovereignty Movement.
2: She says she's now free to speak to champion the Black Sovereignty Movement. Yeah, she
1: she says that. But then it's really interesting that Adam Bandt has taken this softly, softly approach. He didn't demand the Green seat back. This is record time. uh, Defections have happened before. There's a lot of historical I mean, he could have demanded
2: it, but that just would have been, you know, showpony,
0: really, because you can't get it back. Yeah, look, I think it's. Can you know about that? No, no, no. I think it'll be hard to get it back. Well, he can't. I mean, goes. she was elected to to the parliament, and she has and she has some support in the in the Victorian base. Well, look, he could have made the demand. He could have even if it's for nothing, even if it's pyrrhic, even if she says, "Well, I'm not vacating and I'm under no obligation to." It's sort of another fight you lose, mm. I guess. If you're a party leader, you know, he lost the fight to keep her in the tent. The, then you don't want to double down on that by losing a second fight by asking her
1: to. No, and depart. clearly they've done a deal not to baggy each other. Yes. Right? Look, that's clear because they say we're not going to talk about what's happened in the Greens. Yes. Okay, so there's that. My personal view is that now she has less political muscle than when she was in the Greens Mm -hmm. because part of her political currency, in my view, was because she was the outspoken one that was saying something different to her party. Yep. I think now she's actually marginalised herself.
0: Yeah, well, look, there's been uh, some comparisons in an analysis piece I wrote earlier in the week. A lot of comparison to Corey Bernardi's trajectory, obviously, when he uh, sort of flipped out of the Liberal Party uh, wanting to build a conservative movement. Obviously, that was not very successful. Mm. He just sort of couldn't make it catch. Uh, look, that is, you know, that's a possible trajectory here, for sure. Uh, and it is hard to, uh, Patricia's right in the sense, in- institutionally, she, she lacks support and resources now. But I suppose in my mind, you know, I I think about, Let's just think about this. The Voice, if we look at all of the published polling, our Guardian Essential also this week, we know that the supermajority for The Voice in the Australian community exists for people under 34. North of 80% support, 89% support, I think, the Zoomers. So there are a lot of young people in Australia, progressive people who will want to be good allies in this referendum. I think it becomes confusing for them potentially if they hear Different messages from different Indigenous figures, because they'll ask themselves, "Well, who do I believe? Yeah. We've, now right, you know? we've now got two Indigenous,
2: we've now two Indigenous senators in the Parliament saying, "No, don't do this. We want, don't want this. It's not good enough. It's yep. it's a sidetrack." And then you've got you know the others like you know the Greens First Nations group, their, their leaders speaking out against it. I mean, it is it is uh, it is
0: messy, and that's that's never good. It's, for it's a tricky, referendum. but but obviously I need to say very quickly that we cannot expect. For First Nations people to be a hive
1: mind. No. no, or, not, all, <laughs> or, not all white people agree with each other. Exactly. That's, what, that's exactly. In fact, that's what the parliament is. No, exactly. exactly. White people disagreeing so, with each other. Exactly. A lot of white people. A lot, of, a, white, a lot of people well, of colour now majority, in here too. Yeah.
0: Majority, yeah. But it's sort of like, I just, I just want to make that point clear because we can sound inadvertently stupid and patronising. I mean, it's like, of course, uh, this has to be a debate. People have to be able to express their views and argue things honestly and legitimately. It's just, you know, for young... I just see uh, there, there would be some young Australian progressives who would find Thorpe quite a compelling figure in the same way as a lot of young progressives around the world love AOC, right? An outspoken, mm-hmm. give-it-to-the-institutions kind of compelling figure. Anyway, how does the story end? God knows, Fran. Yeah. None of us know. <laughs> well,
1: let me ask this, um, because we talk about the left, the progressive side of this debate. On The Voice this week, we've also seen two moderate Liberals really push for support from their colleagues. Senator Andrew Bragg, who's long been in favour of The Voice, but he released this kind of, I don't know, it's like a mini-manifesto Oh, almost five points, trying to convince his own colleagues to support The Voice, saying The Voice isn't woke, yep. it's not identity politics, it's really just a liberal idea. Liberal MP Bridget Archer also is going to be the co-chair of the new Friends of Uluru group. Now, just you know, full disclosure like, about the, their past, they're both well-known, moderate people yep. who think these things, but they have gone out publicly. But at the end of the day, the, Peter Dutton's still dancing yep. around this. Well, he's he's more than dancing around it.
0: He's running a soft no campaign is what he's doing. He may course correct he might bring himself back to the word middle course, which is allowing people to, his own people, to express their own consciences or their own views about that. Uh, But I think that's really, you know, on current styling, you know, the best we can hope for. Look, yeah, it has been a summer of soft no. These moderates, you're right, Patricia, they have well-established positions. Andrew Bragg has campaigned for this for quite a long period of time. But moderates, of course, have to choose when to use their voices. Mm. And I think this week it's been very interesting that we have seen... uh, Simon Birmingham, uh, Andrew Bragg and uh, Bridget Archer all out in the public domain arguing with a different tone to Peter Dutton.
2: You mentioned Simon Birmingham. He's the most senior of these voices. He's a senior shadow cabinet minister. He is the senior moderate and he went on breakfast this week and, you know, had a position clearly at odds with Peter Dutton's position when it comes to whether there should be federal funding, government funding for the yes and the no campaigns. Here's Simon Birmingham. Simon Birmingham.
0: I'm not keen to see large licks of taxpayer funding spent uh, on running campaigns. Um, There may need to be some administrative support for the standing up of official yes or no campaign committees, but there are already people getting organised to run their campaigns. uh, And so uh, I don't think that taxpayers need to be funding the advertising elements and all of those different uh, components that we might see too. Catherine, that's a split in the coalition's position right there, isn't it? Where's this heading? Well, I think it is interesting because now we've, we've turned the corner. We're in a new political year. We're past the sort of election transition honeymoon. Now we're all hunkering down for a heavy year of governing. I think it's interesting that in the first sitting week of the year, some moderates are finding their voices on various policy issues. So at the very least, I think they want to signal to voters that the moderate wing of the Liberal Party still exists after a very bad election result, which wiped out a substantial proportion of the moderate wing of the Liberal Party. I think they want to signal to voters that the moderates are still there, that there's still a voice, that they are seeking to represent centre-right progressives. So I think it's just been interesting on a couple of Mm. issues uh, to see voices raised this week.
1: And so we've dealt with the Greens, the progressive side of politics and the way they're dealing with the voice, the Liberals and how they might be navigating it on the government. Yep. Because they're key. Anthony Easy providing this deal on the pamphlets, That's that old-fashioned thing where you get a written thing Something of a yes in the mail. and a no, every household gets it. They weren't going to do it, they thought it was outdated, but Peter Dutton asked for it and he got it. Yes. What was that all about? Well, look,
0: I, I think uh, that uh, Anthony Albanese is hoping that if he doesn't put Peter Dutton in a corner if he doesn't dial things up to 11 with Peter Dutton and make this a death match, that somehow he can sort of guide the play where Peter Dutton isn't going to do a full-throated, negative, destructive, no campaign in the referendum. Mm. I think he is hopeful. Look, I think we would all be surprised if Peter Dutton supported this. Uh, because we know that there is very hardline opposition in his own party room and in his base in Queensland. So I think it's quite difficult for him to say yes, be good for the country if he did, but I think it's difficult. So now the sort of play, if you're the government, is to try and uh, give Peter Dutton some room to basically be a neutral force in the referendum rather than a destructive one.
2: And what does that mean? Does that mean a conscience vote? I mean, is the play, and is this what Simon Birmingham is doing now by making such strong public statements, signalling to Peter Dutton and all that he wants to... You know, support the voice. Therefore, it precludes Peter Dutton having a, a firm no, fixed no position from the opposition, that there has to be a conscience vote allowed within the party room? Yeah, well, look, it's
0: certainly the position of supporters of the voice in the coalition that uh, that they must be permitted to exercise their own free will and free views mm. on this issue in the event the official position is no or maybe that has been expressed within the coalition for many months, that this is, that's the minimum, that we must be able to express our views. Uh, In terms of the government, well, again, it's sort of like obviously the government cannot control what happens in the Liberal and National parties. They have no control over that. But they do uh, have some ability to create a bit of political room for Peter Dutton to try and use the whole voice debate as an opportunity to perhaps even show a different side of him Mm. to the Australian people. I think it's so fascinating, Fran, what's going on, all these little minute calibrations that are happening literally day by day on this in front of us. I think uh, there's a strong view in the government that that we don't put Dutton in a corner unless we have to. And mm. then he's going in the corner and, you know, it'll be all guns blazing. Yeah. In that case, he'll put himself
1: in the corner. Well, exactly. He'll, he'll be walking to the exactly. corner. Exactly.
0: He, if he's going to put himself in the corner, if he's going to be the microwave Tony Abbott, if that's the path he chooses, if he thinks that's his path, then he will make that choice. He will not be engineered by government pressure, by silly sort of slick politics, uh, that, that he will make that choice. And he will be accountable for that choice.
1: On something so fundamental, still seems a lot of politics in all of it, Catherine. For sure. For thanks, for, sure. thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, it's lovely to be here. Thanks very much, Move. We'll move to
2: questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister.
1: And it's time for our question time. A great rival to the real question time this week. <laughs> which was a little lacklustre, but my analysis on that another time. The bells are ringing. It means it's time for question time. And this week, Luke asks the question, and Luke asks, with the resignation of Lydia Thorpe from the Greens, who will Labor have to lean on in the Senate to pass legislation?
2: Okay. Well, that's a good question because the government doesn't have the numbers in the Senate to be able to get its legislation through. It needs a uh, balance of power players. In the past, the Greens had 12 senators, which meant if the Greens backed them, then Labor only needed one more from the crossbench. And the crossbench includes people like Independent Senator David Pocock, Jackie Lambie and her offside of the two Jackie Lambie party senators, Pauline Hanson and the One Nation senators. So you know they just needed David Pocock and the Greens and they were home as we saw in operation over the IR bill before Christmas, now with Lydia Thorpe going to the crossbench, it means the government needs. If the if the opposition isn't supporting them, it's going to need the Greens and two crossbench senators. That makes it a lot more complex. It might mean they make best friends with the Jackie Lambie party, for instance, and there's two votes for them. Or One Nation. It's more likely they're going to be needing to get the likes of David Pocock and Lydia Thorpe. That might prove difficult for them. You know, is Lydia Thorpe going to come on and be in coalition with the Greens on many things at the moment? So, there's a, you know, I think this is unpredictable and Mm. certainly makes it a lot more work for the the Labor Senate leader, which happens
1: to be Penny Wong, who's pretty busy anyway. You just nailed it's just extra work. Of course they've got a pathway still. Um, now Lydia Thorpe is only guaranteed, as we were saying, um, support on climate to the Greens. So there's a lot of other issues, like there's a budget in May. There's a lot of other issues that are going to have to be negotiated. It is trickier for the government. It's a bit of a headache for them, but they knew this was coming. Everyone kind of knew this was probably going to end this way. So they're ready, ready to roll on it. But yeah, it's more complicated. We saw the deal on the pamphlets done this week. That was sort of an example of the government sort of bending, moving, so they can... Rolling over on something that they don't... Doing something. ...doesn't matter much. But uh,
2: I, I would add too that these crossbench senators, when you're in a balance of power situation, it puts a lot of pressure on you. It's a lot of work because you're a key player with maximum pressure on you sometimes on a vote. You need to know every single detail. So Lydia Thorpe too will be in for a lot more work as well because uh, a crossbench office is a very busy and
1: harried place. Sure is. Well, that's it for The Party Room this week. Thank you so much for listening in. Tell your friends, share it around, uh, subscribe for someone who hasn't even given you consent. Okay, get consent, <laughs> then subscribe. Um, send your questions in too because we love getting your questions. You can tweet using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to the party room at abc.net.au.
2: Yes, do get consent and follow us on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. We'll be back next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.